Well, as I said, it's always a privilege for me to be able to uh, have the opportunity to preach the Word of God. Love this church, love you folks, and, uh, and are glad to be here. If you turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, looking at verse 11 through verse 15. If you would, I'm going to ask you to stand again, if you would, as I read our text. Let's stand together. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we indeed honor you. We come before you, God, with humility, a heart and a soul of dependency upon your gracious mercy and your love for your church. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are indeed the one that leads and guides us into all truth. God, I pray today that you would indeed give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts made ready to receive and believe the word of God. And for that, we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Thank you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said something one time, and I'm quoting him, and this is what he said. Quote, Oh, what would the damned in hell give for a sermon could they but listen once more? They would consent, if it were possible, to bear 10,000 years of hell's torments if they might but once more have the word presented, presented to them. If I had a congregation such as that would be, of men who have tasted the wrath of God, of men who know what an awful thing it is to fall into the hands of an angry God, how would they lean forward to catch every word? End of quote. Martin Luther said, Hell will be a particular place where those will be who are condemned to hell and to the eternal wrath of God. No doubt it now is and will be far worse than anyone is able to describe, picture, or think it to be. You know, no one accepts 
the word of God seriously, that accepts it seriously, that would doubt the existence of heaven. But hell, it is rejected by many and preached by few preachers. It's really appalling to see how there is either an purposeful or a intentional avoiding preaching on the doctrine of hell today more so than it's probably ever been. But the truth of the matter is Jesus Christ himself had more to say about eternal judgment and hell than any other person in the Bible. And not to add that he also had more to say about about eternal judgment in hell than he had about heaven, Jesus himself. And there are those who think that even the notion of hell is atrocious. It's brutal. It's cruel. It's hateful. It's ruthless. It's vicious. It's very unkind. It's not even fair to even think about. Some would even ask what kind of God would send people into everlasting punishment. The only way to answer that question is this way. God is never in the position and will never be in the position of defending himself regarding the truths he makes known in his word. God's nature, God's works, and revelation define what is true, just, and righteous to be found only in his word. In fact, the purpose revealed in divine truth, that is the word of God, that, that being, again, God's word concerning hell's horror is to warn sinners of its reality and the terrifying destiny that awaits them there so as to drive them to repent of their sins and take hold of salvation in Christ. The truth of the matter is Jesus Christ was a hellfire preacher. People often ask me when I invite them to a church in Columbia. Sometimes they'll say, are you one of those hellfire preachers? And of course my response is, well, what do you mean by a hellfire preacher? And usually what they say is not what I am, but yet at the same time, I realize if I'm to be faithful to the task of preaching the authoritative word of God, there's no way of excusing myself from preaching on the doctrine of hell. And that's what I've been preaching on at our church for the past four weeks. I must say to the glory of God that in going on 14 years that my wife Tina and I have been serving this church in Columbia, that I have never had more feedback, maybe in a positive way, after teaching on the doctrine of hell. It's not popular. 
It's not something most people want to hear about, but yet it can't be ignored. It's found in the Word of God. And it's interesting that even Jesus described hell as the outer darkness. Outer darkness. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 12, found again in 22, verse 13, also found in 25, verse 30 of Matthew's Gospel. He identifies hell as the outer darkness. In other words, it's a picture of abandonment and banishment, of being cast away permanently from God's presence. 2 Thessalonians 1 night talks about hell's torment makes it a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I looked at that word gnashing of teeth and it literally means to grit your teeth. The horrific place called hell is where people gnash their teeth, grind their teeth. And what is worst of all about hell? There is no hope of relief for hell's inhabitants who have no rest day or night, seen in Revelation 14, 11, and also in Revelation 20, verse 10. And their sentence there is eternal, their punishment never ending. The fire of hell is unquenchable and will never cease not to burn. In Matthew 3, 12, and Mark 9, 43. And since it's everlasting... That's the way it will be. The destruction of the wicked in hell is eternal and never comes to an end. Never comes to an end. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, according to 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Let me just add one little thought to this. Hell is not remedial. It's not a place where you can have rehab of trying to get good enough and do better and somehow you can escape hell and come out and everything will be okay. It's not remedial. There's no place for any kind of intended correction. Any room for any kind of improvement that might make you look good for good behavior in hell. And also, it's only punitive. All that's to be in hell for all eternity is punishment inflicted on those who are there. Here in Revelation 20, 11 through verse 15, our text, these verses describe the concluding judgment of all the unbelievers of all the ages. Jesus actually made mention to this event as the resurrection of condemnation. Found in John 5, 25 through 29, and this is what Jesus said 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to exercise judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This judgment takes place in the end of the present universe as seen in verse 11. And then, and, after, and in between the creation of the new heaven and the new earth found in Revelation 21 verse 1. And this is what it says there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. So between the present universe in verse 11 and then the new heaven and the new earth in 21 verse 1, this judgment of Christ takes place. In fact, the entire universe as we know it will be destroyed. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 10-13. So, the entire universe as we know it will be destroyed and will be replaced by a new creation that will last forever. It's almost like we began in the Garden of Eden and we end up in the Garden of Eden. That's wonderful. And when you look at verse 11 again in chapter 20, our text, it says, John says, And then I saw a great white throne. Fifty times in Revelation, you will see the word throne. The great white throne is a judgment throne. It's an elevated throne. It's a pure throne. It's a holy throne. And why is that? Because God himself sits on this throne as judge. Revelation 4, 2 says, immediately, John says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Revelation 4, 9, John says, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. 
Revelation 5.1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Revelation 5.7 says, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Revelation 5.11 says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Verse 13 of Revelation 5 says, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And Revelation 6, 16 says, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath is come and who is able to stand here's a people that saw thought that literally rocks falling on them destroying them would be more comfortable and more pleasing than to stand before the god of the universe who sits on this throne Revelation 7.10 says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 15 of Revelation 7, For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. That's not all 50 places you find the word throne, but that's some of them right there, all found in Revelation. God does sit on his throne as judge in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, 5 and 6 says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Verse 6, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water without cost. Sort of sounds like the words of Jesus in John 4. And the woman at Jacob's well, he told her and he said, everyone <coughs> excuse me, who drinks of this water, from this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. There's a water to be received that speaks of eternal life that only Jesus Christ can give. And that life, that water he gives will cause you to never thirst again. Acts 17, 30-31 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men <coughs> excuse me, that all people everywhere should repent because He is fixed today in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
And then in verse 11, again in our text, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, John actually saw the polluted, defiled, tainted universe go out of existence as we know it. As we read back in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. So essentially, the universe is actually uncreated, going into a, going into a non-existence. <coughs> Will somebody please get me a cup of water? <clears throat> Anybody could do that for me? Thank you. <coughs> Tickle in the throat, I apologize. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then in verse 12 of our text, John says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, standing before God, in a judicial way, as guilty, condemned prisoners before the divine bar of God's justice, these individuals are all physically dead since there are no longer any living people. None survive the devastation and destruction of the present universe. In fact, the last living unbelievers will perish when God destroys the rebellion at the end of the millennium. But the last living believers will be translated and transformed into their eternal bodies like Enoch who walked with God and was no more. Elijah, who left this world in a fiery chariot, and the raptured church when he comes again. In fact, the dead seen here, standing before the throne. Thank you so much. Thank you. The dead seen standing here before the throne of the Lord's divine judgment are not just from the millennial rebellion, but include all, all, all the unbelievers who ever lived, ever lived. And as we mentioned earlier, this is the resurrection of judgment seen in John 5. The resurrection of what we would call to disgrace and everlasting contempt found in Daniel 12.2. Of course, Revelation, or excuse me, Acts 24.15 says it speaks also of the resurrection of the wicked. The truth is, church, is that the word of God informs us that no believer in Christ will ever face God's judgment. You just had a chance to say amen and you missed it. All those in Christ will not participate in this great, great white throne judgment. Because, according to Romans 8, 1, if you're in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. In fact, the Word of God informs us that no believer will ever face God's judgment because, as I said, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. John three eighteen says, Everyone who believes in Him is not judged. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad you're in Christ? Aren't you glad there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain? And I want to say here this evening, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I beseech you by the mercy of God that you repent and say yes to Jesus Christ and believe that He's the Son of God.
and trust Him as your Savior and your Lord and you'll be saved. I pray that if you haven't done that, you'll do that today. John 5, 24 says, They have eternal life and do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. And please notice back there in verse 12 again in our text in Revelation 20, it speaks of the great and the small at this great white throne judgment. John informs us that out of all unbelievers, it would encompass both the great and the small. It is to say all will face judgment, the somebodies and the nobodies. No partiality with God. They will be there, the great and the small. And then when you look at verse 12, the middle part of that verse in our text, it says, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And as the judgment begins, the judge opens the books. In fact, I love what Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its rivers of fire was flowing. And coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Sounds like Revelation 20. The books contained the record of every thought, every word, every action, every deed of every unsafe person who ever lived. Ever lived. The Lord has kept perfect, accurate, comprehensive records of every person's life. Notice again, and the dead will be judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Unbelievers' deeds will be measured against God's perfect holy standard, which Jesus defined in Matthew 5.48 by saying, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now what did he mean by that? That the only way you could ever measure up to that statement is to be found in Christ. Positionally in Christ, you stand before God as blameless, as perfect, and as clean as the driven snow, only because of Jesus Christ. Only because of Jesus Christ. God's justice demands payment. The title of the message is, Does the Sentence Fit the Crime? We understand what that means, right? If you hear someone in a courtroom, attorneys talking, they might bring up, I just don't think that sentence fits that crime. I think that person needs more of a sentence. Or I think that person needs a less of a sentence. Sentence. 
But in reality, God's justice, God's justice demands payment for every person's sins. And Jesus paid that penalty for all who would indeed believe. I love what Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 says, talking about Jesus. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10.9 and 10 says, If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with your heart you believe and with your mouth you confess. 1 John 4.7-9 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God because God is love. Herein was that love manifest. That he gave his only begotten son that we might live through him. In Christ we have complete salvation. Complete forgiveness and complete victory in Jesus Christ. I love what A.W. Tozier said. The only sin Jesus had was ours. And the only righteousness we could ever have was his. I like what John MacArthur said. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life. So that he could treat you as if you lived his life. God's judgment of impenitent, unbelieving sinners' evil deeds, number one, will include their thoughts. Psalm 44, 21 says, God knows the secrets of the heart. Romans 2, 16 says, He will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Luke 8, 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. God's judgment on those impenitent, unbelieving sinners will include their thoughts. Unbelievers will also be judged for their words. Matthew 12, 37 says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And thirdly, finally, unbelievers will be judged for their actions. Their actions. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Then back in our text in chapter verse 12, after the books containing the unbelievers' evil deeds were opened and their thoughts and their actions and their words, 
there was another book that was opened, which is the book of life. And since their names were not in the book of life, the unbelievers before the great white throne were judged, every one of them according to their deeds, it says. And here's a PowerPoint. For those who refuse to plead guilty to their sins in this world and repent and ask God for pardon based on the substitutionary work of Christ, they will face trial after they die and on that day they will be pronounced guilty. Guilty. Jonathan Edwards, Northampton, Massachusetts, 18th century preached a message entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As, as identified as a celebrated message that he preached. It is documented. In fact, I had the privilege of going to New England many times. I've been there many times over the years to minister. A pastor friend of mine would take these road trips and go to these different places. We went to where Jonathan Edward pastored in Northampton. We went to uh, Newburyport. Uh, mass where uh, George Whitfield pastored. Uh, we went all these places. What a blessing it was to be there. But actually the first place known that they knew of that Jonathan Edwards preached that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God in Enfield, Connecticut. Enfield, Connecticut. The church building is just not there anymore, but there's this huge boulder of granite on the ground about this big and so wide and sort of on an angle. And it says here on this date and this place, Jonathan Edwards preached his celebrated sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm sure you probably know about Jonathan Edwards. You probably read about him. You could have read a biography or maybe Pastor Mark has shared some thoughts about him. But it's documented that there were times when he would preach that. And right in the middle of the message, people would stand at their pew, crying, wanting to know what they needed to do to escape hell. It's powerful, isn't it? People came to Christ and were saved as a result of that message that God used in his servant, Jonathan Edwards. But back in our text, when you look at verse 13, it says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And so since their deaths, their souls have been tormented in a place of punishment called Hades, and now the time has come for them to be sentenced to the final eternal hell called the lake of fire. And before the sea was uncreated and went out of existence, it says the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Which were in it. The sea may be singled out because of it seemingly being the most difficult place from which bodies could be resurrected. But... The Lord will call from its depths new bodies for all who perished in the sea throughout human history. That would include the flood in Noah's day. All those who went down to the Titanic. 
All those that went down the Lusitania, not to mention the countless others, ships that have sunk, as well as all the millions of other people that lost their lives in the sea. Sea's going to give up the dead. Death here represents all the places on the land from which God will resurrect new bodies for the unrighteous dead. Oh yeah, they'll have a resurrected body that'll be fit for their destiny, that will be fit for hell. And as one writer put it, the sea and death are pictured as ferocious monsters that have swallowed up those bodies and will be forced to disgorge them before this judgment seat. You notice the word Hades. Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol. Both words describe the realm of the dead. Sheol is used 67 times in the Old Testament, and it describes the realm of the dead in general. But Hades is used 10 times in the New Testament, and it always speaks in reference to the place of punishment where the unrighteous dead are kept, pending their sentencing to hell. Here in our text, Hades is emptied, emptied of its captive spirits who are reunited with resurrection bodies before the bar of God's justice. So unbelievers fitted with resurrection bodies suited for hell will then be ready for their sentencing to the lake of fire where their punishment, unlike that in Hades, will last forever. When we look back at verse 14 and 15 in our text, it says, Then the dead in Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John MacArthur says, and I quote, The evidence is irrefutable. The verdict is rendered. Judgment will be swiftly carried out. As the sentencing is passed, death in Hades, the grave, and the temporary place of punishment for everyone whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. They will be swallowed up by the final hell. Second death equals, or is about the first, second death in comparison to the first death is only physical. The second is spiritual and eternal in the lake of fire, the final eternal hell. And it is to say that the true believer in Christ in the first resurrection will not experience the second death. You find that in verse 6. Revelation 20, but the rest of the dead who did not participate in the first resurrection, seen in verse 5 of chapter 20, will face the second death, which is defined here as the lake of fire. And the power point here is that those who die in their sins in this present world of time and space will die a second death in eternity. They will be sentenced to the lake of fire forever. It's interesting that fire is used more than 20 times in the New Testament to depict the torment of hell. Whether the fire of hell is literal, physical is unknown, 
And since the lake of fire exists outside the created universe as we know it, it is to say that the word of God depicts hell as a place of total darkness which will isolate those there from each other, a place where the worm never dieth, a place of banishment from God's kingdom, a place of in unending sorrow. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is all to say that hell, the lake of fire, is horrific, is painful, living forever with your conscience intact to remind you always of where you are and never to rid yourself of living with your memory, your sorrow, your despair forever. Forever. Conclusion. There's only one way to avoid it. The terrifying reality of hell. Those who confess their sin and ask God to forgive them on the basis of Christ's substitutionary death on their behalf will be delivered from God's eternal wrath. You must be saved. Come to Jesus. Repent. Believe He's the Son of God. And trust Him as your Savior. One last thing i got to read that quote from Spurgeon one more time. Oh, what would the damn in hell give for a sermon? Could they but listen once more? They would consent, if it were possible, to bear 10,000 years of hell's torment if they might but once more have the word presented to them. If I had a congregation such as that would be, of men who have tasted the wrath of God, of men who know that an awful thing is to fall into the hands of an angry God, how would they lean forward, forward, forward to catch Every word. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we're so thankful that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord, our soon coming King.